Open with me, if you will, to the, the book of Jude. We'll be continuing in Jude this morning. We looked at the introduction last week, and now we come to the first major section of Jude. Starting off with, I want to remind you, uh, it runs all the way down through 16, because in verse 17, he again reminds us of something. Uh, he wants to remind us or admonish us concerning the things we once knew, the things that are important for us to remember. I think that there's a disconnect in the mind of his readers, both in his day and today, between the facts and the truths of the Bible that people understand and know, and the application of them to life. Uh, many people can recite the stories he talks about here. In fact, most people in a church know know the story of the Exodus we just read part of. Uh, they may not really understand about the angels, but they should also then remember about Sodom and Gomorrah, which he talks about in this first section. So we'll be starting to look at verses 5 through 10, which is one chunk. But it'll take us a little bit to get through that, maybe two weeks. Uh, basically, though, he's saying, you know, I want to remind you of these things and explain them to them because you seem to have forgotten them. And this forgetting or this confusion is caused by the those people he speaks of in verse 4. And so we'll carefully consider these three stories today and then next week, Lord willing, we'll review them and consider his application of the stories. But before we do that, let us read the text. I'm going to start back in verse 3, not verse 5, and we'll read down through 16. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the practice of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in a like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting foam on the, of their sh- own shame. Wandering stars for whom gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we begin to look at the meat of the book of Jude, we pray that you would bless us to be able to understand, to be able to draw wisdom and knowledge from it, and to draw ourselves closer to you through it, and to prepare ourselves and protect ourselves for the struggles that come to us in this life, in this world filled with ungodly people who hate you and work against you. So we pray for your strength in Christ's name. Amen. So he starts this off with three ancient examples that the people should understand and know. And he's using an interesting teaching formula here. He starts off, I I want to remind you, and then he gives some specific examples or citations, and then he gives an application of those, how they apply to what he's trying to teach, to his point. And this has been called the fuller disclosure formula, but we can just see this as a way of He's taking some Old Testament texts and he's showing them, showing us how the same thing applies in his day and in our day. So you might ask then, what, what is Jude trying to prove with these since you give the examples and you explain them? Well, he, he's trying to help us understand what he means in verse 4. Certain people who have crept in long ago who are designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. So these people have crept in and are perverting the church, the truth, the teachings. Now he expected his hearers to know all about these things he's referring to, but I think we should remind ourselves about them because his interpretation and application of them is something that people have forgotten. They, they ignore. They, they focus on other parts that don't matter or don't imply. Now, in the book of Jude, he uses a lot of these illustrations. Uh, six of them come from the Old Testament. One of them we can see some information about in the Old and the New Testament. And two of them 
are not found in the Bible, but are found in what's called the Apocrypha, which we'll talk about later. Uh, the, the, I'll say for now, though, the, the Apocrypha is being used as a source of an oral tradition. And since Jude is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing only the true parts. If you actually went and read the books he's referring to, they're full of all kinds of bizarre nonsense and heresy. Uh, Apocrypha means literally the, the false writings. Or no, the hidden writings, the things that are kept. They're not inspired. They were kept separate from the, the Bible. And they were never considered part of Scripture. The pseudepigrapha is the false writings where somebody is writing pretending to be somebody else. You may remember the one that was in the news not long ago. Well, maybe five or ten years ago. <laughs> not very long. Um, what was it? The something of Jude. Or Judas. The epistle of Judas or the gospel of Judas. Something like that. In which Judas is the only one Jesus trusted and gave him the secret knowledge. And he was assigned by Jesus the task he did. Um, you know, the pseudepigrapher is really lies. The... Um, other books that uh, we don't consider part of the Apocrypha, the hidden books, some of them are good histories. First and second Maccabees give an intertestament history. Uh, they're not that bad. They're not considered inspired. And even the author you know, laments the fact that there hasn't been a prophet in Israel. Uh, they're not trying to be something, but they're just writings that give us some insight into the era. Uh, anyway, his use of these books is uh, something he chose because they were well-known and well-discussed in his day. Anyway, uh, remember our definition of inspiration. Jude's use of them, what he puts of them, are truths that just happened to also be in these other books. Uh, inspiration is that act of the Holy Spirit where he guides the writers of the books of Scripture so the words should convey the thought he wished conveyed should bear a proper relationship to the thought of other inspired books and should be kept free from errors of fact, doctrine, or judgment. In other words, if he's quoting them or you were referring to something they taught, what he's referring to is probably truth, depending on how you look at the context. We also see Paul a number of times quoting the pagans. You guys say this, well, let me explain the reality to you. And Jude is saying, you believe these things. Let me explain how you should be applying them. Uh, so he says, basically, since you know these examples, I'm going to show you how they apply to these false teachers. So it's the first example, the one we just read in the Old Testament reading. But it's fascinating how he explains it. He says, Jesus saved the people for himself. And then he destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, interesting understanding. We should really, in looking at Numbers 14 this morning and looking at the book of Exodus, we should really think about what happened. Think about where is Jesus in this? And what did God do? What did Jesus do? If we look at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we can see the state of the Egyptian or the the exiled to Egypt and of the people of God in Egypt. And I want to just read a short piece of that. 
So Exodus 1.8, there rose a new king who did not know Joseph. Now Joseph was a hero in old Egypt because he saved the people from a famine and made them very prosperous. Uh, historically, we think Egypt was conquered by another dynasty and they had nothing to do with those that Joseph had helped. So a new king was over Egypt and he said to the people, Behold, these people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, the promise was always that they would be there for a short time, 400 years, and leave. Uh, so therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh cities, store cities, Python and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Part of the blessing God gave to Abraham's descendants. And so the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So they're not being treated very well. And the king of Egypt said to the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sherephath and one Pua, said, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see on the birth stool if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. So their state was very hard. They were kept as slaves. The purpose in keeping them was not to allow them to escape, but to force them to do the work for Egypt. Uh, they didn't really have any hope of saving themselves. They had no desire even to save themselves. They just moaned and groaned under the bondage. And note Jesus is telling us, or Jude is telling us that it is Jesus who is saving them. Jesus saved them, not meaning salvation of their souls, but meaning delivered them from the physical slavery in Egypt and brought them into God's house. Uh, in Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, we read, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Think about that for a minute. Yahweh is the one who brought them out of Egypt. Jude says it is Jesus who did it. Jesus is, in the Old Testament a few times, called Yahweh. Uh, referred to as that, the covenant name of God, the triune God. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And it is he who actually did the work, according to Jude. Now, what we're seeing is these people who saw all the mighty miracles of God, all the signs that he did on the Egyptians, those who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and saw the enemy army floating on the sea, drowned. Those people should have known who God was. They followed a pillar, had a pillar of fire by night and followed a pillar of, fire by, or a pillar of cloud by day. They saw his miracles, his deliverance, his feeding them, his giving them water to drink. They saw it all with their own eyes. 
they had seen more than people today have ever imagined. And yet, what did they do? They rejected God. They rebelled against him. They did not believe. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, or in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 30, talking now to the people at the end of the, the exile, end of the wandering in the desert, I should say, where all the adults died except for two, or three, Moses is still alive. And the younger generation has come up. And the Lord your God, Yahweh, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, as he did in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So the new generation has been following for 40 years in the desert. God has fed them. God has cared for them. God has protected them. Yet in spite of this word, verse 32, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents and a fire by night and a cloud by day to show you what way you should go. And Yahweh heard your words and was angered and he swore, none of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jupeth. <clears throat> he shall see it and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. So he's telling them that all those people who were with him, seeing the signs in Egypt, seeing the deliverance at the Red Sea, seeing the provision in the wilderness leading up to the point, they, they forsook him. They would not believe him. Okay, yeah, sure, he did all those things, but how can he help us defeat the enemy in the land? Uh, and they rejected him, and God swore in his anger he would not let them see the land. And Jude tells us that Jesus saved them, but then he punished them. He saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now Jesus is the one who destroyed them. And Jesus is the one who delivered them. He delivered the people, many are called, and he destroyed those who did not believe. Few are chosen. And June says they once knew this. He's implying now that they had forgotten it. Uh, before we think about that, let's look at what Peter says. Because 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 has many of the same things written in it as Jude does. Uh, Second Peter and Jude have a lot of parallels. So chapter 3, verses 1, I'll read 1 through 7, I guess. This is now the second letter I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere mind by way of reminder. So Peter's purpose was to stir them up and remind them of the things they should know and the meaning of it. And if we have empty head knowledge that means nothing to our heart, it doesn't impact the way we live. And many Christians hold these stories as stories they've heard, but they don't apply them to themselves, to their own heart. 
So he's trying to stir us up by way of reminder. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through our apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffering, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. In verse 5, this is what I want you to remember. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world then that existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what is Peter telling them? You know, you should know these things, but you deliberately forget. And I think that's what's going on here. Now, before you tell me I belabored a story you know very well, um, do you really think of that story correctly? Do you think of it as Jesus who saved them? Do you think of it as Jesus who destroyed the unbelievers? Uh, Paul speaks of this same event, and he gives a summary in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual milk. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Spiritual drink. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 died in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents or grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. I think in most Christian churches, you'll find people who've asked about Jesus and his work will turn immediately to places like John twelve forty seven. He says, if anyone hears the word, my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And say, see, we, we don't need to worry about the instructions of God's word. We have Christ. We have grace. We may go on in our sins. Oh, they don't say that explicitly, of course. Um, they believe that. And they reject anything else. Anything that contradicts their desire, anything that contradicts their hope. That's what the men Jude is talking about in the beginning. Those certain people that he's referring to. Now, if you read that passage, you should really need to read the next verse. And this is what people willingly forget today. John twelve forty seven. I just read, 48 says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, they're willing willing to think of his incarnation, which was to save our souls, to die for our sins. 
to live the life that we did not, but they aren't willing to think of Jesus in his second coming, Jesus in his lordship, in his kingship, in his Lord of Lords and King of Kings phase or state where he is going to judge the world. Paul, when he's preaching to the Areopagus in Acts 17, says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this is given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we may know that God will judge the world through Christ because Christ raised from the dead. Paul is saying also that Jesus is the judge of the world. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now you might think, well, that's all well and good, but my hope is that God is love and Jesus is not here to judge. But Jesus himself says in John 5, 22 and 23, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. And whatever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So Jesus is claiming himself that he is the judge. When he says, I did not come to judge, but to save, he is talking about the work of his incarnation. He has throughout all of history interacted with mankind and he has interacted as Lord, King and judge. And so Jude is trying to remind them that Jesus, we worship as Lord and Savior. He saved these people too. He brought them into the visible kingdom, into the assembly of God, the the Jews. And those who did, did not believe, they had no place. Those he destroyed. Do you remember that? Is that the God you worship? Is that the Jesus you worship? And so that is what he is calling them to remember. That Jesus is judge and that he has judged in the past and will judge in the future. And what were they judged for? Unbelief, grumbling, rebelling against his teaching. He speaks more of the things they did later in the letter and we'll go over those. But the things that men were doing to this very day, the things that these mentioned in verse 4, those certain people were doing in teaching and getting others to do and to teach. Now the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about this as well. And I want to briefly look there. In chapter 3, Verses 7 and following, he talks about the um, entering God's rest. And he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So he calls the grumbling of the Jews in the wilderness the rebellion. They rebelled against the God who had saved them. He said, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore I was provoked with that generation, saying they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, Very much parallel to what Jude is talking about. These people hardened by the deceitfulness of sin are doing the same things the Jews did during the rebellion. The same thing the Jews did in the wilderness. They grumble against God. They, They give themselves to their own passions, their own pleasures, their own desires, their own dreams and visions, he talks about in Jude, rather than following God. Who were those who heard and rebel? Continue on chapter 3, verse 16 of Hebrews. Were it not those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years, was it with not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Whom did he swear would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Unbelief and disobedience are linked hand in hand in the word of God. And these people were unbelieving, and that's why they were disobedient. This should make it clear, though, the point I want to make and the point he's making is that the certain people of verse 4 were really considered part of God's people. All those who fell in the wilderness were not Egyptians, they were Jews. They were not outsiders of the church, they were the membership of the nation of Israel, the church of the Old Testament. And it was they who fell. Now these people had knowledge of God's truth. They had probably seen the miracles God had done among the people in the New Testament, the ones Jude is writing about. They had sworn probably to follow God. They were probably seen as being orthodox, as being true Christians, true believers. And like those who were in the wilderness, who had sworn to follow God and sworn to keep his covenant repeatedly, like them, they turned away from God. They rebelled against him. They rejected him as Lord. They rejected his salvation And they revealed themselves as enemies of the cross. And that's the point we need to take from the first one. In all of these things that the people did in the wilderness, we see those same things in men today, and that that is evidence of rejection of the cross, rejection of Christ. So he goes on then with a second example, the fallen angels. Now, Jude is writing in an era of great angelotry. Uh, The Jews especially were fascinated with hierarchies of angels and of demons. There was a lot of syncretism in that day between the Greek and Roman religions and the unbelieving Jews. Uh, Most of it comes in with mysticism and speculation. And a lot is written about angels and demons and hierarchies and the fantasies they have about the wars going on and 
none of that is really found in the Bible. Uh, his reference here is probably the teachings in First Enoch, which was an apocryphal book. And as I explained, not really a book that is useful to the Christian, but it's a summary of what they were believing in their day. Uh, the apocryphal book of First Enoch, the Greek myth of Zeus destroying the Titans, and a Zoroastrian legend of the fall of Aharima and his angels. Uh, not to mention the some rabbis of that day were taking uh, Genesis 6-1 that talks about the sons of man and the sons of God. And they were coming up with great fantasies about how angels were having children with men. Uh, personally, I reject that because Jesus in talking about the in dealing with the attack against him by the unbelieving Sadducees said that you don't understand. Angels are neither married nor are given in marriage. That's not something angels can do. But they had these elaborate fantasies. Uh, I have a little ex, a little summary of Enoch, but I don't think I'll bother with it. It basically has a lot of stuff about angels. And people believe these things. Uh, Paul speaks to the sin of angel worship in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the, the giving up of all pleasures and you know, denying the flesh and you know, living <coughs> in pain and misery. Uh, it usually comes about because of a mistaken belief that Flesh is unspiritual and anything that gives to the flesh, like eating good food and health, is unspiritual and prevents you from achieving perfection. But anyway, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. There was a lot of that going on in his day and people were getting distracted by it. Going, in, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by our, their sensual mind not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So what is he saying, these people? Talking about the same kind of people Judah's fighting. You know, remember that New Testament era throughout that region of Rome through Turkey down to Israel. You know, all of these people, Jude, Paul, Peter, were all active in that same area. And they were dealing with that same influence. You know, the Greek conquest and then the Roman conquest had created a wide area where their religion was dispersed. And the natural view, way of man is syncretism. You know, mix the two together and come up with a new religion. And Jude speaks on that in his book. And Paul and Peter also speak about it. And it was a big problem. But asceticism, the worship of angels, and visions, we'll get to those more later in the book of Jude, were all sins that they had to deal with. Paul warns us against this kind of secret knowledge in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, where he says, do not go beyond what is written. Now there's danger in getting outside of Scripture and puffing yourself up with all these knowledge that is not knowledge. So the angels, what were they supposed to be? Well, they were servants of God. 
Isaiah 6 has a good, good little story, glimpse into heaven, which shows us the purpose of angels. Uh, the first seven verses. In that year, the King Uzziah died. The King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So they were in heaven, ministering to God, worshiping God, praising God. And that was one of their great purposes. They are the servants of God. And Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And so we see also they are there to minister between God and men, and minister to man for God, I guess I should say. Hebrews 1.14, speaking of the angels, says they are ministering serpent, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. But what happened? Well, people will talk about many passages, Lucifer and this and that and the other thing. Probably the most clear Old Testament passage that's irrefutable would be in Isaiah 24.21 where it talks about the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven and the kings of the earth on earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, and the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory shall be before his elders. So we know they're going to be punished. They fell somehow. And that fall is referenced here in the book of Jude as well. They didn't keep their place. They fell. According to uh, Revelation chapter 7, or chapter 12, verse 7 to 9, there's a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fight the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fight back. And the great dragon is described as the devil and Satan. And so apparently there are enemy angels. Those are the ones described here in Jude as having left their place. Now this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. These angels, these servants of God were greater than man. And if they were punished for leaving their place and rebelling, how much more will we be punished for doing the same thing? Uh, these fallen angels had despised the goodness of God. They deserted their first place, their work. They were like military deserters, gone over from the side of God to his enemy. And for that, they will be severely punished, and they are. And people know from the little bits of truth in the stories that were being told that these fallen angels are imprisoned in gloomy darkness cast into hell. Jesus speaks of them being 
when he talks about the judgment in Matthew 25, 41, he says, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, the unbelieving people, who, by the way, thought themselves part of the kingdom of God and the church of God. He says, depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so these angels Judah's talking about have a destination. That destination was known to the Jews and it's known to us. And that is the lake of fire, eternal torment. And many of them are in prison, suffering to this very day in gloomy darkness. And since we are lower than them, and they suffered this way for their rebellion, how much more if we rebel? Now men like to think, oh, but I'm not rebelling. Well, if you're not doing what he said in his word, you're rebelling against him. Uh, So he gives a third example. In this section, Sodom and Gomorrah being burned with eternal fire. Peter speaks of this in chapter 2, which is really mirrors Jude quite a bit. He says, if by turning the cities of Ghana, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse, chapter 2, verse 6, to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example what will happen to the ungodly. Now he goes on to talk about Lot and other things. But this is a third example of his vengeance, God's vengeance, Christ's vengeance upon sinners. Just like the Israelites who rebelled against God and the angels who rebelled against God, these people had great favors. When Lot chose the land down by Sodom and Gomorrah, why did he choose it? Genesis 13.10, it says, You know, he looked around and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a lush, well-watered land. It was the perfect land for him to live and to raise his livestock. They had that great blessing. They also had been delivered by Abraham. You remember the story in uh, Genesis 14, and I'm running long, so I won't go into this too much, but there's a war and the kings who win and defeat the kings and the king of Sodom ran off and hid, and they took Sodom's and Gomorrah's things captive, including Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham rallies his 318 men and apparently some allies, Uh, some other kings, and they go after them and they pursue them and they defeat them and they rescue Lot and bring all the things back. But Abraham doesn't keep the things of Sodom. The king of Sodom says, you know, give give me the people and you can keep the spoils. But Abraham says, no, I've sworn to the Lord not to take even a thread or a sandal strap that is yours, lest you be able to say I have made Abraham rich. So he took nothing. They'd been delivered by him. They'd been given all of their things back by him. They'd had a great blessing. And Lot was amongst them. And Lot was there as a witness and a testimony to them. And Abraham made intercession for them. When the Lord was going to go destroy it, he says, Oh, Lord, you know, will you destroy the city for the want of how many men? And he goes on about that. Uh, Yet, even despite the blessings they had, they turned away from what God required. Now you might say, oh, but they weren't God's people. Well, we were all 
<laughs> created by God and live in his world. We all owe him our allegiance. Uh, what did they want to do? Well, Jude says sexual immorality, essentially. They wanted to capture the two visitors. Genesis 19, the two angels have gone down and they call, where are the men who came to you tonight to Lot? Bring them out so that we may know them. Know there is the word used in the Old Testament for sexual knowledge, sexual conduct. What was their sin, the first one? They wanted to rape and have sex with these two men. Uh, they were supposed to welcome them. And the book of Ezekiel, as God is listing the sins of the people of Israel, he says, Behold, the, uh, Ezekiel sixteen forty nine and 15, Behold the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, blessings. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. They should have been hospitable to the strangers who came and cared for them, fed them and given them a place to stay. That's why they were waiting at the in the town for somebody to bring them home. And Lot brought them home. Said, "Oh, don't sleep here, or know what will happen." Uh, so. Sexual immorality and perversion, they, they weren't satisfied with what God gave them. You know, one man, one woman for life. They rejected God's provision in that and wanted the exact opposite. What would the worst opposite be? Same-sex rape. And that's what they were about, and that's what they wanted. Uh, now, you have to, In thinking about this, remember that it was not just a few men. It was the city of Sodom, the city of Gomorrah, and the surrounding peoples. How did so many become so perverted? Well, train a child when they're young in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. It works both for teaching righteousness and sin. They were probably doing what the West is doing today and teaching children perversion so that they grew up perverted. Now, sexual immorality is against the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. It is also, in the Old Testament, likened to um, rebellion against God and worshiping other gods. You know, God is your God, and when you're with other gods and you turn away from them, he says they have committed adultery. James also calls them adulterous people in James 4, 4. He says, do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God, bringing about that same idea that, you know, if you're not faithful to God, it's like committing adultery. And everybody could understand adultery. You know, if my wife or my husband is going out and committing adultery, I'm betrayed. Even the sexually immoral and wicked are offended by that. And God uses that relationship as an example of what he feels when people don't worship him as he has required. And so they had turned away from God to their passions, and they had turned again in rebellion, even though they had received blessings from God, they rebelled against him, and their sinful passions led them to a consequence of eternal fire, Jude says. And that eternal fire is waiting for us all. They've, they've turned away from God and could only expect his judgment to be waiting for them. 
So he gives these three examples, and we'll look at his application next week to the false teachers, to those trying to lead them astray. Uh, but I want us to remember particularly not just the examples, but who he says is the head here, Christ. Jesus saved the people. Jesus destroyed them. In a like manner also, Sodom and Gomorrah, in a like manner, the angels. Now, these are three stories that we should all understand with a cause and an effect. And our Lord and Savior our God is a jealous God. Uh, he does not like us rebelling and turning away from him, and there's a consequence for it. Uh, next week, we'll look at the application of that to these false teachers. But for now, let us remember these, these events of the past that happened, Paul says, as examples for us. The example of their rebellion and the, the example of their consequence. Either you follow what God has commanded and believe what God has told, or you're an enemy, a rebel. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for Jude's efforts to clarify these things and make us understand these stories and their application. And we pray as we go through them and through the book of Jude, you'll help us to, to fight the good fight, to defend the faith once for all delivered unto the saints to persevere in our worship of you and our glorifying of you, that you may be pleased with us and say to us in the end, well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask for mercy, but we also ask for the grace, Lord, to be kind, to be gracious, to rescue those who are lost in sin as if snatching a burning ember, burning branch out of the fire. Help us to be mindful that these are not simply enemies, but they, they may be those who can be called and turned to know you and ask us, Lord, to be faithful in our witness, faithful in our grace. In Christ's name, amen.